couple things from me to you. I am actually just have one announcement, two announcements, because they don't give me the announcements anymore. I talk too much. Announcement number one, save the date for Fall Classic, November 11th through the 13th. That's it. Put it on your calendar. That's what you need to know. We're going away on a weekend together, and I can't wait. That's Sammy. It's all you need to know. I don't see you writing anything down. Did you even hear what I said? He was spaced out, you guys. Let me say it again. November 11th to 13th, Fall Classic. Announcement number two. Uh, I will just say this as the homeowner here. Thank you for joining me in my home. Uh, we have a lot of neighbors all around this place, and we pack this thing out every Wednesday with about 100 high school students, every Friday with what looks like 70 or 80 college students. And you can imagine that it's a little bit busy for the neighborhood. So I wanted to say thank you for parking. This street over here is called Adams. We try to put everybody out on there just to keep the flow open in the neighborhood because the people directly around us, they endure quite a bit. So thank you for, for doing that and parking out there. There are two bathrooms, uh, and if you need to use one, it's totally fine. If you go through the hallway right here to the left, there's one, and straight towards the back, there's another one. Okay? That's great. Thank you. In the spring of 1519, Hernando Cortez, a Spanish, JJ, you ready? Conquistador. How'd I do? That was okay. Leslie, say Puerto Rico. Oh, look at that. Okay. Cortez and 600 men on 11 ships set sail for the new world for crown and glory. They sailed across the Atlantic with visions of conquest and wealth. They were, they were told that there was a city of gold, a fountain of youth, and other priceless treasures that the imagination was running wild with. They would have more than they could possibly imagine. Riches and wealth that would dazzle the eye, priceless treasures. And so they left Spain with visions of adventure, of glory, of fame. I want you to just think for a minute... In our little world here, we get in the car, we plug in the navigation system, and off we drive to our next location with our Starbucks mobile order, what it must have been like to get onto one of these boats and sail off for the new world. You'd be leaving your family behind. You'd be leaving everything you knew about life behind you and setting off on a new adventure, something that you could never go back to. You're saying goodbye to them forever, and off you go into the new world. They would never again taste the delicacies of the Spanish cuisine or the sights or smells of their homeland. Do you ever even now go to a place and a smell pops up and you go, oh, that reminds me of when I was in kindergarten or something of that nature? The, just, the, just the memories of those things. There would be nobody to speak their language. They would be foreigners. They knew that there would be sacrifices, but they expected great reward. But these men, as they crossed the Atlantic Ocean hit the eastern shore of North America, and they hit many unforeseen obstacles, trials, and circumstances they had not anticipated. Their brochure they received said nothing about the hostile natives who would try to kill them, or the new types of predatory animals that they had never seen before, or even the tropical diseases that would ravage, ravage their ranks. I can imagine standing on the shore that first day and thinking... I want to go back home. I didn't ask for this pain. I don't want to suffer. I thought this would be easier. I'm not ready for this kind of sacrifice. I'd like to go back to the way that things used to be. And just for a moment, 
I think that we as Christians can relate. We too are on a journey. Some call this an adventure. We too are looking forward to all the promises and all the rewards that God has, has given or has promised to us. Love and joy and peace and hope and fulfillment. And ultimately we, we look towards an eternal reward. But too often like Cortez and his men, we stand on the shore thinking about our old lives. How things used to be. And if we're not careful, we can get complacent even comfortable as we drift back into our old way of life. Sometimes we even long to go back. This was true of Israel. There's a, there's a, there's a, um, a, a verse in Numbers chapter 11, verse 5. They had been f- set free from Egypt. They're out there. They're finally no longer slaves. And, and Numbers 11.5 says, We remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt. And we eat the fish free. We're free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Maybe the person next to you had garlic tonight. And now you're stuck for as long as I'm going to preach. They... They long to go back, and sometimes we feel the same way. Our old life calls to us. Like a magnet, it pulls at our flesh. It wants us back. And if we're not careful, we can allow our hearts to wander, to see the passing pleasure of sin as more satisfying than knowing Jesus. Have you ever had a season like that? I certainly have. I bet many of you have. You might be going through a season like that right now. And if you admit it, sometimes we may even think that it's just easier to cash in. I'm done. This has been good. My parents raised me in the church. I did the church thing for a long time. And you know what? I just want to go have fun. I want to be free. I don't want to have the responsibility or the accountability. This is too hard. This is too restrictive. It's too much work. It's not worth the reward. This is so appealing and I want to live however I want. If you stop for just a minute, every one of us has felt that way, if you would admit it. We've all stood on the shoreline, as it were, looking back at our old way of life, wishing, wanting, even fantasizing about it. The Christian lives between two worlds, always in some form of tension. Theologians say it this way, we are living in the already, not yet. We are living in the already. God has saved us. He has made us his own. We love him. We recognize that we belong to him. That's the already today. But the not yet is the fact that we're looking towards heaven. There is something coming for us. We still live in this sinful body in this sinful world. We are in the already, but the not yet. And there's a tension there. On the one hand, I want to live for Christ in holiness, to say no to sin, to say yes to Jesus. I want to read my Bible. I want to go to church. I want to fellowship with his people. I want to sing at the top of my lungs from my heart. But on the other hand, I want to fulfill the desires of my flesh. I want to look at impure images. I want to hook up with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I want to binge watch Netflix. I want to sleep in and miss church. I want to be lazy and live for my own selfish creature comforts. Familiar? This is the tension of the Christian life. 
So what do we do? How do we address this? We need to go to the Word of God. We need to see what God has to say. Because the answers to all of life are found in His revealed Word. We call it the Bible, the Scriptures, the Word of God. And that's where we're going to go. Tonight and for this entire semester, we're going to be working our way through Romans chapter 12. So if you would, open your Bibles there now. Romans chapter 12. I believe we'll find answers to these questions in this single chapter of Romans. John Piper said Romans is the most important Christian work ever written. Ben Merkel, one of my professors at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said it is the greatest letter ever written. Martin Luther said the more we deal with it, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. And J.I. Packer said, when the message of Romans gets into a person's heart, there is no telling what may happen. There is power in these words. There's power in this chapter because this comes directly from the mouth of God to us. God has certain requirements and demands, and he lays out many of them here in Romans 12. And I just have to tell you on a personal side, this is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. It's okay if you claim it as one of your favorites as well. It is filled with instruction that will help us as we seek to live the Christian life. The truths contained here are so clear. They are so concise. They are incredibly helpful. It's as if the Bible has been distilled down to just one chapter and it's been poured into a cup and handed to you to drink. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to live for Him? If so, you'll find fuel for that fire in Romans 12. Are you new to the faith? Unsure where to go or what to do next? This is all new to you as a Christian? You will find direction right here in Romans 12. Are you struggling tonight? Thinking of giving up? Having wandered away from nearness to Christ? Then you need the healing balm of Romans 12 to draw you back into intimacy with Christ. Are you not yet a follower of Jesus Christ? You're just exploring and looking and trying to understand what it means to be a Christian. You got invited by somebody tonight, and this is all new to you. This chapter will answer the questions about what a Christian is, what it means to be a Christian, and why that offers fulfillment in life. There's something here for each of us as God seeks to get a hold of our hearts and bring us nearer to Him. And so to begin this this season, this fall semester in Romans 12, I'd like to read the entire chapter. Probably the only time we'll do this um, in its entirety, all 21 verses, then give a few introductory thoughts and leave you with some ideas of where we're going this semester. I plan to be short, but we all know that's not really possible. So (laughs) Romans chapter 1, follow along with me. Therefore... I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the, to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. and Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Tonight, we're going to start in verse 1. You're convicted already? It's amazing, isn't it? I want you to look all the way back up at verse 1. And we're going to cover just one word. It'll be the longest message you've ever heard on one word. I promise you, Brody. Look at verse 1. You should underline, star, highlight, make a note of. It is the word... Therefore, I love this word. The word therefore, I looked it up. It means for that reason or consequently. It is used to connect two thoughts together. Now, how many of you are in college and you finish with every English class that you're ever going to have to take? Or before you raise your hands, you're not going to school and will never take another English class again. Raise your hand. It's a, it's a good feeling, isn't it? Well, for just a moment, I'm bringing you back to English class because English matters and words matter. The word therefore is used to connect two thoughts together. In some ways, it is a cause and effect. If this is true, then this is the result or this is what will happen. Or because of this, then that. 
fill in this statement. I often try, I oftentimes drive over the speed limit, therefore, I break the law. Therefore, I get there faster. Therefore, I get a ticket. All good. <laughs> this girl is really pretty. I mean, really pretty. And she has a great personality. She's a perfect fit for me. Therefore, I, work on myself. I will ask her out. What was that? I work on myself. I work on myself. <laughs> Therefore, I'll propose. I'll propose, right, right on. I ate spicy food last night. Therefore, <laughs> you get it. Because of this, then that. Right here in Romans 12.1, there is a therefore. It is a very conspicuous word. It's a very important word. This word is the hinge that connects the two halves of Romans. This word is so important, it sits right in the middle of this doctrinal argument. And Paul is using this thing. If it's a pendulum swinging, it is right across the middle. This word is in perfect balance between what happens before and what will happen afterward. In some ways, this word is the equal sign that takes what's on the left side of the equation and matches it with what's on the right side of the equation. It is so critical. Because of the truths, the doctrine, the theology that's laid out in Romans 1 through 11, therefore, live out these things, apply to your life, chapters 12 through 16. This, then, is the link between the substantial doctrine of chapters 1 through 11 and the application of chapters 12 through 16. In chapters 1 through 11, the Apostle Paul, the man who wrote this letter, a letter to the, the Christians who are in Rome, he lays out the foundational truths about what it means to be a Christian. If you're new to the Christian faith and you want to understand what it means to be a Christian, you can look at Romans chapter 1 through 11. It lays out kind of the instruction guide of all that you need to know about being a Christian. Then as a result of those truths, therefore, he gives us chapters 12 through 16. Once you understand this, then you can live that. Or in light of these truths, go live this way. So, the title of our series, if you want to write a heading at the top of your paper every week and tell people to come on Friday nights, our series is called Therefore. Therefore. There it is. And so we can't just dive straight into chapter 12, verse 1. Because there's a Therefore. And if you've been church around long enough, you've heard every dorky preacher ask the question, what is the... Therefore, therefore. That's right. You've all got it. I didn't say it. You did. There it is. And so tonight, what I want to do is I want to walk through the book of Romans in, in miniature very quickly. And I want to point out a few things to you. If you look back at verse 1, he starts by saying, therefore. He says, I urge you by the... What's the next phrase? by the mercies of God. And what he's saying here is if you look back at chapters 1 through 11, Paul summarizes them in the phrase by the mercies of God. 
all of God's mercies, or, or there's a lot of God's mercies laid out in chapters 1 through 11, and therefore, he says, live this way. And so I just want to walk you through a little bit of the mercies of God found in Romans 1 through 11. There's a lot of ways to break this up. I could have walked through chapter by chapter. I could have given you the theological and doctrinal um, kind of big points. I just chose to look as I study this for God's mercies to give them to you. I don't have an outline. I just want to walk through the chapters and, and give these things to you. So I want you to flip in your Bibles. When I give you a verse, you flip over there and we're going to read them together. I'll read out loud. You just follow along and we'll see God's mercies. Okay, go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 16. God has given us his gospel. This is the mercy of God. Look at 1.16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel, by the way? The gospel, if you don't understand that word, it is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is the fact that God has decided to save sinners. Through the work and person of Christ, God has taken sinners who are his enemies and he has brought them and made them friends and brought them together because of what Jesus has done. That's the good news. It's the gospel. And he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16. Look at this. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. If you want to know the mercies of God, here's number one. There's no outline. The first one, though, I see here... (laughs) is that God saves sinners. That's a mercy. He has given us His gospel, His good news, and He saves those who are lost. In chapter 2, verse 4, flip over there. It says, for those who are lost like you and I, He says, do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not even knowing that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. What we learn in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What we learn in chapter 2, verse 4, is that God is kind to us, and that He, in His own person, leads us to repentance. Repentance means He, he turns us from our sin. He takes us headed towards hell, and God, in His kindness, turns us around, and He heads us towards heaven. Wow, I love that. Chapter 4, look at verse 4. I'll just say in this one, God gives us faith. That's his mercy to us. Now to the one who works, 4-4, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. If you think about that, that makes sense, right? You go to your, your job every day, to the one who works, the wage is not a favor, the wage is what you're due. Right here in the front is Lexi Barker. She works for me. And so I make her sit in the front row right in front of me on Friday nights. That's how this works, right, Lexi? Yeah. No, that's not true. Okay. (laughs) She comes in every day. She goes to her computer and she stands there. We provide a standing desk so she can get, you know, her calorie burn in. We have an ergonomic keyboard for her as well. So she's comfortable. She can also lower her desk and sit if she'd like. Okay, but you have to be careful because Lainey recently was over there and found a tarantula crawling underneath her desk. This is true, but the tarantula is now dead. Anyway, Lexi comes in every day. She clocks in. She works all day long. She clocks out. And at the end of every pay period, period, we pay her, right? By the way, what is it that you do for us? You don't want to know. I don't even know. Okay, it doesn't matter. Okay, back to... 
This is just to help you understand you all have a job. Look at 4.4. To the one who works, the wage is not a favor, it's what is due. Every one of us has sinned. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. What is our due? Our due is, is death, is the judgment of God. But look at what's going on here in verse 5. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. There's a ton here, but this is that gospel message, the good news. This says that on your own, you were headed this way, and all of your work trying to please God is not enough. Did you know this, that every religion on the planet, in fact, we could just say religion by itself, is the process by which man or woman is trying to work their way up the mountain to please God. If I do enough good, God will accept me. What this verse is telling us is that there's no way you could do enough good because you're a sinner. Instead, God gives you faith. Again, he's turning you around through repentance that if you would believe in the work of another, the perfection of Jesus Christ, and we'll get to this in just, in just a minute, God takes that faith, look back at verse 5, and he credit, credits it to you as if you did it yourself, as righteousness. He takes Christ's perfection, you didn't work for it, Jesus did, but he goes like this and gives you the paycheck that Jesus deserved, okay? And the paycheck that you deserve, which was death and destruction, we decided, he puts that on Christ on the cross. This is a gift. Faith is a gift given by God. What other mercies do we see in Romans? I need to keep moving. Chapter 5, verse 1. Because of that faith, look there, there's another therefore. Having been justified by faith or declared righteous in the courtroom of God, God stamped it and said, you're innocent. Having been justified by our faith, we, here it is, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We could say it differently. The war is over. Someday I'll tell you the story about um, my dad and how um, his, his dad, my grandfather, went to World War II and fought Bronze Star. Awesome story for another time. He had conceived my father with his, my grandmother before he left. They were married. And my grandma moved back in with my great-grandparents. Anyway, long story short, the scene is World War II is over. The war to end all war, wars is over. And he's coming down basically the escalator at the subway station or coming up and she's coming down to see him. They haven't seen each other in years holding the son that he's never even seen before. The war's over. He's home. There's peace. This is, what, this is what Jesus has done for us. There was a war. We're walking away from God. We're walking in our sin. We're heading for destruction. God in His holiness is over here, and He is ready to pour out His wrath and His judgment. And Jesus stands in the middle, and He negotiates a treaty of peace and brings the two parties together. The war is over in Christ. We have been given peace with Him. How? Look down at chapter 5, verse 6, back to the mercies of God. It says, while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is it. It's his work, his life for ours. He lived a perfect life, perfectly righteous, and God, instead of giving him the paycheck that he deserved, which was reward in heaven, perfection, he gave us that paycheck so that God would look at us and see the perfection of Christ. God would look at Jesus and see 
uh, only our sin. He poured out that sin in Christ on the cross. He looked at us and saw his son, and he treats us in a way that's amazing, which we'll look at in just a minute. Okay, too much. Chapter 6 and 7. The mercy of God is that we've been set free from sin. Look at chapter 6, verse 6. It says, Our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be done away with. Here it is, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Listen carefully, Christian. In Christ, the sin that's in you is dead. You are no longer chained to it. You are no longer under its power. Yes, we are still in the presence of sin, but no longer under the penalty of the power of sin. It was last summer that we were at Lake Powell on a houseboat having a vacation. And with us was a guy named Gabe, Gabriel. He's an Olympic athlete, bronze medalist uh, from like 1996 or something like that. And the dude is like 6'4". He looks like Thor, okay? He's in his 40s now, and I'm just looking at him and go, he's just one good-looking guy. All right, so we're out there, and the water was like maybe 10 feet deep around the houseboat. And a boat had gone by and cut a rope. And so the the anchor, it was like a 20-pound anchor, was at the bottom with a rope just kind of floating up. Gabe swam over to this, went down to the bottom, and he grabs this anchor. It looked like a big mushroom, kind of like this, and then the, right? So he grabs this thing, swims back up to the top, and swam about 40 yards back to the back of the houseboat, lifted it up, and just set it down. And it, and it looked like it was no big deal. It was probably a 20-pound anchor, okay? And I looked at this, and I'm like, I mean, how hard can it be? I was just kind of floating back there. Uh, I put down my virgin pina colada that I was <laughs> sipping on, and I swam over, and I picked this thing up, and I, and I moved it across to go swim with it, and I'm not kidding you, I sank straight to the bottom. <laughs> and I, I'm standing on the bottom holding this thing, and I kicked off to go back up and take a breath. I got about three feet, which is still about you know, six feet from the top. I could not get back to the surface. I'm not kidding. I... I have no idea other than the fact that this is an Olympian and a swimmer and basically a Greek god here in human form. This, I, there's, I just couldn't do it. And I, I, by way of illustration, I thought about that. That's what the power of sin does. It has a hold on you like an anchor that just drags you down. And there's nothing you can do to escape from it. You are held in its power uh, and you're in trouble. But it says here in Romans 6, 6, that we have been crucified with Christ and that we who have died with Christ are now free from sin. The penalty and the power of sin have been permanently severed. So it's like somebody cut that rope and I could swim right back to the top. But sometimes we struggle. And so Paul cries out in chapter 7, verse 24, look at your Bibles. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? This is the conversation we had at the beginning. We want to do the right things. We're Christians, most of us in this room, following Christ, and yet we find ourselves struggling with sin. He says there in verse 25, But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He sets us free. Then in chapter 8, Paul lays out even more mercies. We've been adopted into God's family. We can call him Abba. In the Greek, that means daddy. Look at chapter 8, verse 15. If you've never seen this verse, it's amazing. It says, We have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are, look at this amazing mercy right here. We are children of God. We are children of God. 
He is our Father. We can approach Him and say, Daddy. They used to say that there was one person who could walk into the, into the Oval Office when John F. Kennedy Jr. was president. JFK is in there, and, and there are people that have to schedule appointments. There's people that have to wait their turn. The doors are closed. You can't just walk in there, but there was one person that could come in anytime you wanted. You know who it was? It was his, like, six-year-old son, JFK Jr. So it wasn't JFK Jr.'s president. I'm sorry. I'm scratched from the tape. But his son, John F. Kennedy Jr., at six, could just run into the White House, right into the Oval Office. Why? Because that's his dad. He has access to the most important man, the most powerful man in the world. So we as Christians have access to our Father anytime we want to go into His presence because sin has been taken away and we can come right into His very throne room and call out Daddy to Him. And then look back at verse 17. If we are children, look at your Bibles, we are heirs also. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We have an inheritance coming. Not because of the work we did. You want to talk about mercies? But because of the work Jesus did. What a promise. We share in the reward of Christ. We were living this way, headed towards judgment. That was our reward. Jesus lives perfectly. And we somehow get His reward. We're heirs with Him. When the Father looks at you, He is saying, well done, good and faithful servant. When it, I should say this. When your father, father looks at you, remember at the baptism of Jesus? He said, this is my beloved son, this is probably better, in whom I am well pleased. God sees that in you. He is not disappointed, Christian, in your, in your failures. He is not looking at you waiting to pour out judgment. He doesn't count your shortcomings. He counted all of those on the cross and sees only the perfection of his son when he looks at you. Romans 8.28, look at that verse. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's a mercy. Everything in your life is working out for your good according to God's purpose. That's amazing. It's overwhelming. Chapter 8, verse 35, he asked the question, who will then separate us from the love of Christ? Could it be tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? The implied answer, nothing. Look at 38. I love this. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a statement. What a statement. There is no sin, no event, no person, no force, nothing that can separate the Christian from the love of God. He has us wrapped up in his eternal plan. He chose us before the foundation of the, of the world. Chapters 9 through 11 talk about God's great plan of redemption, which we won't get into. And, he, and in chapter 12, excuse me. So therefore, when you get to chapter 12, there's a massive therefore. All of these things happen in chapters 1 through 11. God has done so many amazing things, poured out his mercies on us. And you hit chapter 12, verse 1, and there's just this word there. It's the word therefore. Because of all of these things, as a result of everything God has done, because of all that He is, chapters 1 through 11, His, his kindness leads us to a repentance. He gives us faith. He has negotiated peace. He set us free from sin. He has adopted us as, as sons and daughters. He has made us heirs. He works all things together for good. And He loves us all the way to the cross. Therefore, because of the mercies of God... He says, you can live the Christian life. We'll look at this more next week, but the motivation to say no to sin and yes to Jesus is not do more better. 
It's not just whip yourself because you're not doing things the right way and feel like you never live up to the standard. It is because of everything God has done for you that therefore you desire to live for Him. He has set you free from death. He has removed sin. He looks at you and only sees the perfection of His Son. Therefore, live for Him. Love for Him. Be a man or woman that pursues Christ out of a heart that overflows with gratitude. It has to change your thinking from one of obligation to one of gratitude. Half the time we're serving out of half of a cup. And we should be serving out of a cup that's just overflowing. Not out of duty or obligation, but out of delight and out of desire. So, if you look at chapter 12, verse 1 says, Give God your body. Therefore, because of His mercies, give Him your body, all that you are. Hold nothing back. He is to be your everything. As a sacrifice is put on the altar and burned, so your life is laid at His throne and all is given to Him. Verse 2, don't just give Him your body, give Him your mind. Change how you think. Change what you desire. Change the things that you pursue. Make them in accordance with His good and perfect and acceptable will. Chapters 3 through 5, excuse me, verses 3 through 5. View yourself rightly. Recognize you're not all that in a bag of chips. Recognize that you are just a basic sinner that God has redeemed and poured out His His gifting, His Spirit into you so that you can interact with one another in the body, helping each other along. Not for your own ego or your glory, but for His. We don't look at our gifts and raise ourselves up and say, I'm a great communicator. I'm really merciful. I'm a great leader. Wrong Remember who you are. God has sprinkled all those gifts into your life so that he can be lifted up and glorified and not you. And then the rest of the chapter, in staccato machine gun fashion, we are given the greatest concentration of one another's in the Bible. You felt it when I read it earlier, didn't you? Just over and over again, these one another's, meaning how we are to live with one another in the body of Christ. Because of what God has done for you, You are to not only love Him, but you are to live for Him. And in living for Him, you are to love your neighbor as yourself. And so with all that being said, this text will change how we live. It will instruct us and push us to be more like Christ. To live the way He lived, to love the way He loved. And I hope that you'll come back to hear more because next week is flat out amazing as we learn how to put our bodies on the altar and offer God all that we are. You cannot miss it. It is pivotal to the entire chapter as we move through. Now, standing on the eastern shore of Mexico, Cortez realized that he had a major problem. The men were dreaming of home. At first, he heard the conversations just in passing. But the desire to go back to Spain began to grow. He heard more and more talk. He sensed wisely that the men would soon abandon their mission, get on those boats, and sail back to their old way of life. Fearing mutiny, Cortez acted in an unbelievable way. In an act of total commitment to his cause, he sounded the order, burn the ships. 
under pain of death for mutiny, his men lit fire to these wooden boats, their only way of escape. And they watched as their ticket back to their past life was destroyed. And as they stood there on the shore of that new world, with no chance of going back, they were forced to press on to complete their mission. And we're here in a similar situation. Being a Christian is not as easy as you thought it would be. You sit in church and everybody talks with all these Christianese words about blessing and happy and the Lord do this and all these little Christianese type of things. But you get into life and there are struggles and trials and sometimes you just want to turn around and go back to where you came from. But like Cortez, there is no going back. The order has been sounded. Burn the ships. Friend, there's nothing to go back to. Your old life is dead. It has been crucified with Christ. And now you have turned an about face and you live for him. And your mission is this way. To give all that you are for Christ. Because of what he has done, friend, listen. Therefore, you're in that Already not yet moment right now. Therefore, you turn and you rededicate your life and your passions and all that you are to living for him. He's called us to give everything for him. He has promised never to leave us or forsake us. He has given us the Holy Spirit to help us. And we have the promise of his love to guard our hearts and motivate us to greater service and commitment to him. This semester... We're going to uncover what it means to be, to be a Christian and what it looks like to follow Christ. And I hope you'll come back. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian or have questions that you want answered, please come talk to us. We would love to walk through with you what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But for tonight, we're done. Let me pray. We'll sing again and we'll close. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this therefore as we see the very mercy of of God poured out into our lives, we just want to say thank you because...